You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, do you hear that? Let us then with, with what? Confidence. confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen. Father, we thank you for this beautiful word. Would you bear much fruit in us? Would you bear much fruit in our hearts, in our lives? You know what we need. So I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would fill our hearts, that you would help us empty our hearts of, of pride and selfishness and of, of all these ideas and ideologies of the world. And would you fill us with the power and with the person of the Holy Spirit? And would you use this word this morning to bear much fruit in our hearts? In Jesus' name, we pray and we all say, Amen. You may be seated, church. So we are in a series, uh, a shorter Christmas series called Great Joy, a Savior for All Seasons. Uh, Lucas started last uh, Sunday and it was awesome. My apologies, I did not upload the podcast yet, so uh, I can't say, well, go and if you, if you weren't here, go and listen to it. But I think maybe I can promise that I can do it either tomorrow or Tuesday. So you can go, for, for those of you that haven't listened to that, this, the first session of this series, to go listen to it. Awesome message. Great, great, powerful message. But there are three Old Testament offices, appointed and anointed offices, and one of them is the office of prophet. And last week, we learned that Jesus is the anointed prophet, the Messiah. He's not just a prophet. A person that speaks the word of God, a person that conveys God's message, because that's what a prophet does. But Jesus, we learn that he is the, the word of God incarnate. How crazy is that? How beautiful is that? So Jesus fulfills the office of the prophet in a, in a major, major way. And the second office of the Old Testament is that of a priest. And today we're going to be talking about the fact that Jesus also bears... The title, that title of the high and holy and heavenly priest of God. Uh, just as there were Old Testament priests who prayed for the people, who offered sacrifices, um, and who served in the place of worship. Remember in the Old Testament, if you read through the Old Testament, the temple and the tabernacle. Jesus fulfills the office of the priesthood and is now our priest. So Jesus is credentialed as both prophet and priest. And the next time that we're together, Lord willing, next Sunday, we'll talk about the third office, which is king, the anointed king of the universe. Now, as we probably, you know, all of us here know, God came in the person of Jesus Christ. He was born at Bethlehem and lived and died and rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father. That's very, very important. The Bible describes our Lord as being at the right hand of the Father or seated on the throne of God. Today, this very hour, this very moment, as I'm speaking to you right this very moment, 
Jesus is appearing in the presence of the Father at the throne of God. Right now. Do you know what this means? This means that we have a daily advent of Jesus, a daily coming, because that's what Advent means, a daily coming of Jesus, a daily coming to the throne of God, the presence of God. And that has some pretty sweet implications for us. Because his daily coming to the throne of God is on our behalf. How powerful and beautiful is that? We speak of the first advent of Jesus, the first coming of Jesus when he came the first time. But the awesome thing is that Jesus appears continually before the throne of God on our behalf. Hmm. This is like, uh, for those of you that really, really love Christmas and really get behind it, this is like Christmas yesterday, today, and forever. I mean, celebrating Christmas the right way, not the way the world does. And the question is, what is Jesus doing right now? That's a very important question, which we will try to answer today. And the answer to this question will point to the fact that Jesus is a Savior for all seasons. When stuff is going bad in our life, when, when we get to celebrate a birth of a child or whatever, he is a savior for all seasons. And because of that, our hearts should explode with great joy. And I hope that that will happen today in our hearts too, that we get a, just a glimpse of that joy. Now, virtually, I believe every religion in the world, every culture of the world recognizes a need for a priest. What is a priest? A priest is a mediator between God and men, a mediator between God and men. And this is exactly what we have in scripture, the office of, the office of priesthood. Now in the Old Testament, the priesthood was called the Levitical priesthood or the Aaronic priesthood because Aaron was the, high, the first high priest and he was from the tribe of Levi. Now, just bear with me. I'm going to get just a little bit technical. And that's because of Lucas last week. He cornered me <laughs> to get into this. And so in order to serve in the priesthood, one had to be from the tribe of Levi. That's just, just the way things are. And that's why it's called the Levitical priesthood. And yet in the book of Hebrews... It's the book we'll be in today and for actually the remainder and for the rest of the series. In the book of Hebrews, Christ is exalted as the long-promised king of the kingdom of God. And as I said, we're, we're going to look at that next week. But this king is a king who would come from the tribe of Judah, a different tribe. And in our Hebrews passage for today, Hebrews 4, 16, 14 to 16, Jesus is being celebrated as the great high priest from a different tribe. Well, we may have a problem then if the kingly line comes from Judah if the pre, and then the priestly line comes from Levi. How can Christ fulfill both of these ideals then? Because he can't be from both tribes and we know that he's from the tribe of Judah and he is the son of David. Again, we're only talking about this because Lucas cornered me last week by mentioning this Melchizedek character. I'm, I'm tongue in cheek. I'm being funny. What was that? I know, I know. That's fine, though. <laughs> and now I have to talk about it, but I was going to talk about it anyways. I'm just being funny here. Now, the answer to this seeming tension is found by looking into the priesthood of this character of Melchizedek. Here we go. Please bear with me. The author of Hebrews tells us that Christ was a priest, not of the 
Aaronic priesthood and not of the Levitical priesthood, but of the line of this new character Melchizedek, of which we hear almost nothing in the Old Testament. And then the author of Hebrews uh, develops the case that the priesthood of Melchizedek is not an inferior priesthood to that of Aaron or to the Levites, but is indeed a superior priesthood. And to, to prove that point, the author of Hebrews goes back to the Old Testament and speaks of that incident. If you read that passage, if you remember when Abraham meets this mysterious character, Melchizedek, whose name means king of righteousness, who was described as the king of Salem or the king of peace. And in that encounter, Abraham pays a tithe to this Melchizedek. And Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And in Jewish tradition, we need to know this, in Jewish tradition, it is the inferior who pays tithes to the superior. And it is the superior who blesses the inferior. And so since in that transaction, Melchizedek is seen as superior to Abraham, and Levi comes from the line of Abraham, or descendant of Abraham, it's clear that Melchizedek is superior to Levi by far, by a long margin. And so what we have here is the one who is superior to the prophets, the one who is superior uh, to the angels, the one who is superior to Moses, the one who is superior in glory and in function to the high priesthood of Aaron. And that one is Jesus Christ who brings all of these things together. Actually, the whole premise of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is just superior to everything. As theologians have reflected on this office of Christ's priesthood over the years, they all say the same thing. That the priesthood of Christ is absolutely, and just, just hear what, what, what I'm about to say. It is absolutely vital for our assurance of salvation. Absolutely vital for our comfort today. Absolutely vital for our help in our lives as believers. They all say the same thing. So there's got to be something beautiful there. The 17th century pastor William Bridge said that, and I quote, Christ's office as priest is the great storehouse and supply of all the grace and comfort that we have this side of heaven, end of quote. Before we move any further, we need to keep in mind that the author of Hebrews is writing mostly to the Jewish believers that were abroad, and their circumstances were not ideal. Maybe that goes for you this morning as well. They were dealing with a lot of suffering and even persecution. They were dealing with hardship and confusion and trials and some delicate situations. And they are about to throw in the towel to the point of even saying, man, what's the point in following Jesus if all that brings us is suffering, headaches, and heartaches? What's the point? Forget it. Let's just go back to Judaism. Let's just, just, just go back to the Old Testament. Let's go back to the sacrificial system. Let's go back to our roots. Let's go back to all that we had before because Jesus came and kind of ruined everything for us. We're suffering. That's their context. And that's why the author of Hebrews writes to them. That's why the author of Hebrews is so focused on making sure they understand that Jesus is so much better, is so much more superior than they had before, so much better than everything they had before. And specifically, 
In regards to our theme for this morning, that's why the author of Hebrews is talking about Jesus being the ultimate high priest. And when we understand and grasp what his priesthood means to us, oh boy, it should do something spectacular in our souls. And I, I pray that happens this morning. If it, haven't, if, if it didn't happen before. If you this morning are lacking in assurance of salvation, for some reason you woke up this morning and you said, man, eh, am I in? Did Jesus see what I did last night or this week? Or if you're struggling and you feel that your faith needle has been dropping significantly lately, or if you feel that temptation is hitting you hard from all corners, from all sides, from everywhere, and you're just holding on by a thread ready to throw in the towel, or maybe you're struggling big time and you're suffering. You're just complaining and murmuring all the time and, you, and you're dealing with a lot of anger maybe or frustration, maybe even towards God. God, why am I going through this? And also you maybe have no confidence whatsoever when you pray or to tell God your pain and all the things you're feeling and dealing with. All of these things that I just listed and more. Find their answer on the priestly ministry of Jesus Christ in heaven for us. So this morning, whether you're struggling with guilt or fear or condemnation or whatever it is, the priesthood of Christ is what you need. The priesthood of Christ is what I need. J.C. Ryle said, and I quote, Christ's priesthood is the great secret of daily comfort in Christianity. And so what I want us to share, what I want to share with you this morning is a few thoughts about this colossal and, and encouraging truth that Jesus is our great and our high and heavenly priest. And I want to read that text again. Is it okay if I read it again? It's only three verses. It's powerful. But through the course of the message, I'm going to look a lot at a lot of passages from Hebrews, not just this one. And we'll just ground our thoughts in these three verses though. So Hebrews 4, beginning of verse 14, I'll just read them again. Since then we have a, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And I love this part. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And this morning I want us to look at four things. Just to kind of give you a heads up where we're going. I want us to consider four things about the priesthood of Christ. The position of Christ, our priest. The heart of Christ, our priest. The work of Christ, our priest. And then our response to this beautiful truth, Christ, our priest. So let's look in verse 14, which is the, we see the first main point, which is the position of Christ, our, our priest. And I want to ask this question, what's his position? What does, what does he, what the, where does he function as priest? What is his role in place, the location of Christ's current ministry of priesthood? Well, verse 14, I think, gives us a strong clue. He says, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. He says, he has passed through the heavens. Simply put, this language points to the reality that the risen Christ in his human nature is now exalted to the right hand of God. In fact, 
You have this emphasized over and over and over again in this book of Hebrews. In fact, perhaps more than any other book in the Old Testament, you have an emphasis on the ascension and on the uh, exalted place or position of Jesus Christ. Now, just listen to a rundown of a few. Well, I had a few verses. I cut, I cut it down. Way too many verses in Hebrews that talks about this. I'll just cut it down to three of them. All taken from the book of Hebrews. So Hebrews 1.3. We read that after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 7.26, it says that indeed it was fitting that we should have such a great high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, and exalted above where? Above the heavens. Hebrews 8.1, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. I get you not. I had like, I think, seven or eight verses, but I'll, I'll stop there. So what's the thing that keeps coming up over and over again? He's seated at the right hand of God. He's passed through the heavens. He's right there, the majesty of God on high. What does that mean? <laughs> that can sound kind of like a, you know, church language. What does that mean, though? It means that Jesus Christ, the incarnate one, the one that put on skin and bones, the crucified one who is now risen from the dead in his human nature is now in the very presence of God on our behalf. That is huge. I love the way this uh, Scottish Hebrew professor who was known as Rabbi Duncan put it, John Duncan. He said, the dust of the earth is on the throne of the majesty on high. If you think about it, that's, that's a shocking and astounding thought because Jesus Christ, when he became incarnate, when he put on skin and bones, without losing any of his deity, without losing any of his deity, without losing any of his Godhead, took to himself human nature, and now that very human nature, which was crucified has now been glorified. And it is Christ in his human nature who is at the right hand of God as our high priest. I'm really building something up here. A.W. Tozer put it this way. He said that Jesus is our man in glory. This means, brothers and sisters, friends, that you have a representative, that, that I have an agent who is every bit as much flesh and blood as we are. The man, Jesus of Nazareth, united in a mysterious union to the Son of God. You have someone in your human nature who represents you in the presence of God right this very second in heaven. That's his position. And we got to understand his position to move forward, to move, you know, to move on. He is Jesus who has passed through the heavens and is seated at the right hand of the throne. That's his position. And that should mean the world to us. And if it doesn't yet, that's fine. We're building a case here. Let's go to the second point. The heart of Christ, our priest. The heart of Christ, our priest. Let's ask another question. What's his heart? What's his heart look like? What is his heart? Well, let's look at verse 15. I think it gives us some strong clues. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. This is the heart of Christ. Is our priest in a word? 
But it's in a word that the Bible, the way it uses it, it's just really, really beautiful. It's the word sympathy. The ability to suffer with and to understand another because he suffered as well. That's what it means to have sympathy. Now, Thomas Goodwin, who was a 17th century Puritan, he wrote a lot on the, uh, on the heart of Christ in heaven towards sinners and towards people that suffer on earth. And he was basically saying that Jesus' heart is one, of the, is one of sympathy. It's a disposition of grace and of mercy. I'll just paraphrase Goodwin here, and he, but he says essentially that he chose to write on this, on this verse, Hebrews 4.15, because he says that this text more than any other text in the Bible speaks of our Lord's heart. And he says that if a friend could come and, 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 and help you lay your ear on the chest of Jesus so that you could hear his heartbeat, this is what you would hear in this text is that friend. This verse is that friend. It helps you hear the heartbeat of Christ towards sinners, and it's a heart of sympathy. And this is exactly what I want us to experience this morning from this text. I want us to try to understand this reality and this truth from this text because this is absolutely a game changer. This is amazing. Think about it. The creator who breathed the universe into existence, who fashioned you and I in the image, uh, his image of, of, of likeness, and who came to earth to live among us, to die on a cross, to pay for our mess ups, who rose from the dead to bring us to a new life with him, and who is now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. His heart is full of sympathy and compassion and mercy towards you this morning. This should blow our mind away. That Christ, this exalted priest in heaven, has a disposition towards us of sympathy, of tenderness, of understanding fully, of care, of mercy, and of grace. Church, remember, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Now, there are two places, I believe, from which the sympathy of Christ comes out of or flows out of. It's really based on two things. It's based on his incarnation, him putting on skin and bones, and then his temptation. I think it's very clear out of this text. So first of all, his incarnation. Christ sympathizes with us because he shares our human nature. I mean, look at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. It says, Therefore, he had, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Did you hear that? <laughs> so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation, fancy word for his sacrifice, his, him atoning for our sins, forgiving our sins. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. The author here is arguing that Christ did not come in the nature of angels. Right? He actually came in the nature of human beings, the children of Abraham, the children of Israel. He took on flesh and blood. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. And then verse 18 says, for, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That's sympathy because there's sympathy because he shares, he shares in our human nature. He understands what it is to, to be in our nature. 
Have you, let me ask you this question. Have you ever felt like even the closest people to you don't really get you sometimes? Yeah. It happens quite a bit actually on planet earth. You will never have that problem with Christ. Never. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows. Listen, I don't know what you're going through this morning. Maybe I know a few people and just a little bit. But I don't really know the depth of, your, of the emotions and the circumstances and, and the trials and the suffering and the discouragement and the agony or the, the struggles that you are facing. But there's someone who does. Jesus knows and his heart towards you this morning is sympathy. He understands and he cares. And that should mean everything to us because he can actually do something about it. <laughs> He's the only one that can actually do something about it. People that do not understand you fully, they can't even, they can't do much. God works through them, sure. But Jesus knows and he can actually do something about it. It's one thing to tell a friend about your struggles. He may or may not understand depending on the load he's carrying that season too. And depending on how close you are. So many factors, right? But it's a totally different category to pour out your heart to Jesus. Knowing that his heart towards you is one of compassion and mercy. And he can sympathize with us. And actually, he can do something about it. And he will. Because of his incarnation, he knows and he has the ability to suffer with you and to understand you fully. Okay, so his incarnation is a source of his sympathy. And then also his temptation. This is very interesting. He was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. And because he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Have you ever been tempted? In the last five minutes, I mean, you know. Now, the temptation of Christ is kind of a mysterious thing, isn't it? How is it that he could be tempted in every point, yet without sin? Now, it is good to know that there was nothing in Christ, listen, nothing in Christ internally that could ever be solicited as there was a sinful impulse. He never had an, a sinful impulse. On the other hand, we do have that quite a bit. <laughs> we are tempted as James tells us, and we just walk through the book of James, when we are drawn away by our own lusts, by our own desires, and we are enticed. That didn't happen to Christ. He could, he, he could not be enticed with his own sinful desires because he had none. And the Bible says that yet he endured the full scope and brunt of temptation. How was that possible? Maybe the best explanation that I know of that can help us in understanding this would be from C.S. Lewis. Lewis said in Mere Christianity that it's only those who try to resist temptation who know, know how strong it is actually. We usually give in like two minutes or 30 seconds or whatever, two days. Or... He said, you find out the strength of the wind by trying to walk against it, not by laying down. We usually just lay down. Oh, I'm done. <laughs> we tap out. He said that someone who gives into temptation after five minutes doesn't know the strength of temptation. Doesn't know what it would have been like to endure it for like an hour. But Jesus endured it for 33 years and he never gave in one time. Oh, that's huge. 
The deepest temptation, the deepest trial, the hardest struggle that you have ever felt, Jesus endured way more. He endured more and therefore he's able to help you because of his humanity, his incarnation, because of his experience of temptation. Christ sympathizes with our weaknesses. Did you know that there's a thing called sympathetic resonance where an instrument, let's say a piano, is in a room. Now if we have two pianos in the same room and if the pianos are in tune with one another and you hit the key on one, the string will vibrate on the other so that you get the same resounding tone. Did you know that? Pretty fascinating. In the same way, I believe, in Christ, there is sympathetic resonance. So that when the strings of our human nature are touched with temptation, his human nature resonates. He understands. In church, this is his sympathy. This is his heart. Now, here's the really stunning thing about how Christ is sympathetic with us. The old King James uses the word, he is sympathetic in our infirmities, in our infirmities. And in doing some digging, I I, I think that these infirmities that the old King James uses, this word includes not just our suffering, but also our sin, our temptation. Even some commentators say that if, if this word infirmities wouldn't include our sin as well, it's almost like being upset with your kids when they're sick. I, our kids were sick for the last few weeks, and we had a pretty rough patch when the little guy was so stuffed and congested that he couldn't breathe at night, right? And, and do you think my heart as a father, a father who is sinful, by the way, and even so, Do you think my heart as a father was angry toward Eli because he was stuffed and sick and that he couldn't breathe his infirmities? And let's just assume that he chose to be sick somehow. Let's just assume that, that he chose that pathway. No, no, I'm going to get sick and I'm going to ruin your life for the next month. (laughs) And even so, right? All I wanted is for Eli to be well. I even caught myself saying, Lord, let me have that sickness and let Eli be well. And I'm a sinful father. God is not. Does a father despise his child because he makes stupid decisions and hurts himself? No, he hates the dumb decisions and he hates the sin and he hates everything that hurts the kid, but he loves the kid. What the author of Hebrews is saying is that child, Christ's heart today towards you and me, even when we're struggling with sin, is he hates the sin. He crushed Christ for your sin. Of course he hates it, but he loves you. Meaning he doesn't want us to destroy our lives. He doesn't want us to buy into the devil's lies. He doesn't want us to fall into temptation because that hurts us and destroys our lives. Even us sinful fathers don't want that for our kids, let alone God. He loves us and his heart toward us is one of sympathy. It's one of tenderness, one of mercy, and it's the, it's the desire and the availability and the power to help you in your time of need. That's the heart of Christ towards sinners. Therefore, be encouraged, children of God. By the way, that doesn't mean, I want to be so loud in saying this because this is such a, uh, a, a, an amazing side note. By the way, that doesn't mean sit down and don't fight sin. It doesn't mean that. 
and means be encouraged, but run to Jesus right away in confession, contrition, and repentance. Romans 2.4 says, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? So run to him. Go to him. He will help you in your time of need. So the position of Christ, our priest, the heart of Christ, our priest. And now let's continue with our third point, the work of Christ, the work of Christ, our priest. What is it then that Christ does? What's his work? I mean, we just looked at his heart. Now, what is it that he does for us in in his priesthood? I want to just briefly point out two aspects. And the first one is atonement. That's what he does atonement, or that's what he did. Again, I just wanted to, I want to highlight not several verses. Again, I had a list here, but I'm going to cut it down to like two from Hebrews, because Hebrews, as much as any other place in the Bible, highlights for us the all-sufficient, once and for all, single sacrifice that Jesus Christ made to atone for our sins. In some ways, you could say that much of the book of Hebrews is a commentary on Jesus' words on the cross recorded in the Gospel of John. It is finished. That's what Hebrews is, a commentary to that. It is finished. Just listen to a couple of verses. Hebrews 7, 27. Just let them sink in. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Hebrews 9.12 He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Oh, we can go on and on and on and on. That's one aspect of his priesthood. And that was the aspect of his priesthood that he accomplished when he was on earth at the end of his life. He died on a cross for us, right? To atone for our sins. He offered the one time, once for all, single and sufficient sacrifice for sins. And as the Puritans and a lot of many other commentators draw out, check this out. When Christ made that offering for sin, he satisfied the justice of God, right? More than if every sin for which he died were to be punished eternally in hell. I'll say that again. When Christ made that offering for sin, he satisfied the justice of God more than if every sin for which he died were to be punished eternally in hell. Because listen, when somebody goes to hell, They're suffering for eternity because the justice is never fully satisfied, right? They continue to live in sin and rebellion for an eternity against God. And the justice is never satisfied. It hasn't been resolved fully. But when Jesus died on a cross and he paid for your sins, my sins, he completely exhausted the wrath of God. There's no more wrath left. You are in Christ. If you're in Christ, it is finished. The work of Christ as our priest. How beautiful is that? How powerful. And so it's first of all, atonement, sacrifice. And then secondly, it is 
intercession. This is the second thing that Jesus does. Intercession. He simply just prays for you and for you and for you and for you and for all of us. That's what he does. He already died on a cross. And I pray that somehow, if you haven't made that personal yet, make it personal and receive Christ. But that's something that happened. But what is he doing now? He's praying for you. He's praying for you. He's praying for me. Look at Hebrews 7.25. He's able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. You know what Christ Jesus is doing right now at this very moment? He's praying for me. He's praying for you. You know how churches sometimes try to build these 24-hour prayer drives where somebody's praying every hour of the day? That's a great thing. I commend that. We should do that too. But listen, there's somebody who is always praying for you 24 hours a day. And that's not just a wife. That's not just a close friend. And that's awesome too. That's our high priest. If nobody else is, Jesus is praying for you. He never ceases to intercede for you. He prays for you. This is an awesome source of encouragement and of help. And listen to what Romans 8.34 says. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Did you know that it is the intercession of Christ that keeps you in the faith? It's not you. We have our responsibility, sure. It is the intercession of Christ that recalls you, recovers you, renews you when you have sinned. It is the intercession of Christ that gives you access in the very presence of God when you pray and at all times. Listen to what 1 Peter 2, 4, 5, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 say. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, But in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. And now listen to this. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. Acceptable sacrifices through Jesus. That's the only way you can offer A spiritual sacrifice that is acceptable to God only through Jesus Christ. So let me ask you this. How can our worship, because I know that maybe a lot of us are planning next week already. We're not really fully here. I'm just being honest. Maybe some of us are like, oh man, I can't wait for the service to end. I'm hungry or my kids are crying or whatever the case is, you know, going on in your life right now. So how can our worship, as imperfect as it is, How can our prayers, as defective as they are, ever be met with acceptance in the presence of God? There's only one answer. It is only possible because they go through the hands of Jesus Christ. William Bridge said it's like a child who goes out into the meadows and in the fields to pick flowers for his mother to make a beautiful bouquet. But mixed in with the flowers are all the weeds and all the thistles. 
It's not put together well by any means. So the child brings the flowers to his mom and the mother pulls out all the weeds and all the thistles and arranges the flowers beautifully and wraps them in a beautiful ribbon. And then it's presented to the father perfectly. That's what Christ does. He picks out the weeds and the thistles and the thorns. And let me tell you, there's a, there are a lot of those things in my life. He picks out everything that's defective and he presents an offering to God that is acceptable to this holy and perfect God. Church, I, I, I want you to listen to this. He's praying for you. This is his work. He's already made the sacrifice. The one sacrifice, the sacrifice of atoning to pay for your sins and my sins. And now in the very presence of God, clothed in his human nature with a heart of sympathy towards you in your suffering and in your sin. He pleads the merit of his work on your behalf and he prays that's his work. A man of God said, and I just, just loved this quote. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room. I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Wow. The position of Christ, our priest, the heart of Christ, our priest, the work of Christ, our priest. And now let's look at our last point here. Our response to all of this. Our response to our Christ, to Christ, our priest. What then should be our response? Our response to the priesthood of Christ. What, how should, what should we do? What, what are we to do now? When we understand and grasp this beautiful, beautiful reality. Well, let's look at verse 16. Let us then with what? With confidence, do what? Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The response is simply draw near. Press into his presence. You're invited. Isn't it amazing? Nearness is possible. You can be near to God who you who once were so far away from God. And that's a story that we all share. We all deserve to be cast out of the presence of God, but we can draw near to God and we can draw near to a throne. But it's not a throne of judgment. It's a throne of what? A throne of grace. Draw near to the throne of grace because of what Christ has done, because of who Christ is, because of his heart for you, because of his death on your behalf, because of his intercession in the presence of God for you right now. Draw near. Don't run. Don't stay either. Don't just, don't just be indifferent. Draw near. Draw. You're invited. You're wanted. And what are we drawing near for? Why, are we gonna, why, why should we do this? It says draw near to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Does anybody need mercy this morning? Whew. You know what mercy is? It's a heart of compassion towards those who are in misery, those who are suffering. If you're suffering physically, emotionally, relationally, financially, if you find yourself in hard and delicate 
circumstances, maybe battling discouragement or hopelessness or depression, whatever you are facing right now, you need mercy. And there's one place, just one place that you can get it. You get it at the throne of grace. You get it from Christ, your great and high priest. Does anybody need grace this morning? Every breath that I take, I need grace. Every step that I take, I need grace. Every time I open my mouth, I need grace. And I need more grace if I want to speak something godly too. (laughs) So we not only need mercy, but we need grace as well. Grace is favor freely given to the undeserving. Well, that would be people like you and me. (laughs) If you think you deserve grace this morning, if you think you deserve it, you need it more than anybody else then. The reality is that none of us deserve grace. If you got what we deserve, we would be in, in the pit of hell right now. You're sitting here this morning in church. You're not dead. You're still breathing. You're not lost. And that's because of grace. Also, you can receive grace for your need, grace for your sins, grace of forgiveness, grace of pardon, grace of eternal life, grace of sanctification, grace of change, of transformation, of renewal. All of it is grace. And there's only one place you can get it at the throne of grace. You get access to the throne of grace through Christ, your great and high priest. And it says, right, so therefore let us draw near with timidness, right? With, oh, I don't know if I can. No, it doesn't say that. Does it say fearing that maybe you won't be heard? Is that what it says? No. It says draw near with confidence. Draw near with boldness. I need to add this as well in closing. The Hebrews also says that we are to worship God with reverence and with godly fear for our God is a consuming fire. There's there's no place for indifference. There's no place for being casual in the Christian's approach to God. We need to understand because many do not. That reverence is not timidity. We need to understand that godly fear is not cowardice. There is a combination of boldness, of joy and reverence that can be experienced in the heart of a Christian. When he or she recognizes the infinitely holy God whom we approach, that's the reverence part. He's holy. He's perfect. And the sympathetic, gracious high priest through whom, you know, whom we approach in the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ makes it all possible to stand boldly before this infinitely holy and perfect God. Therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace. Please listen to what I'm about to say now. This should bring so much great joy because he is a savior for all seasons. If you come to the throne of grace with boldness, Through Christ, listen to this, you will never be refused. You will never, ever be refused. If you come through Christ, you will never be refused. Jesus says, whomever comes to me, I will not cast out. Let me end with this illustration. I read this story about a woman who was struggling with her assurance of salvation, and she was doubting it always. And she would go to her pastor and always like, pastor, again, I don't feel saved. I don't know what's going on. And yeah, I'm an introspective type, but, but I'm just struggling with it. You know, I don't know, am I saved? Am I not? But the pastor was trying to help her. And eventually she needed to look outside of herself to Christ and not internally for assurance and confidence. That's not what we do. If you look inside, oh boy, you're never saved. 
This is what the pastor said, and I just, just really loved it. Ma'am, you will never be satisfied until you are satisfied with what satisfies God. And what satisfies God is the death of his son, Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the only thing that satisfies God. The death of his son in our place. Listen, that's the source of our assurance. That's the source of our encouragement, of our help, of our, of our hope. Everything that we need is found in Christ. So the question is, are you looking to him this morning? Am I looking? Am I drawing in? Are you trusting in Christ, your high priest? And are you drawing in? I think the word for next week should be just draw in. Just press into his presence. You're wanted. You're called. You're invited. Whatever your need is, whatever you feel, whatever, just draw in. But what an incredibly beautiful and encouraging message, not only for us, but a message that to take to our unbelieving neighbors, a beautiful message to take to our unbelieving family members. And last week, we, we started writing the names of our uh, loved ones or people that we know that are unchurched or unbelieving we wrote one on one of the ornaments that we have at the back, and we just, we just hung them up on the tree. I want to give you that chance today for those of you that haven't done that or haven't been here last weekend. Just do that. You can do it now or you can do it at the end of the service. Um, or would you stand with me? I'd like to pray for us. And then I'll, Patrick is going to come up, and he's going to share some things about evangelism um, for our church and for us. Let's, let's pray. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.